If you're enjoying Send Me to Sleep, make sure that you've followed the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and any other podcast player you use. Also, if you have a moment, please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. All of this really helps the show reach new listeners. And you never know, your review may convince someone to listen and lead them to a good night's rest, which I hope you all agree is worth sharing. Thanks so much for your listenership and support. Good evening. Welcome to Send Me to Sleep, the world's sleepiest podcast. I'm your host, Andrew. I'm here to help calm your mind and send you into a peaceful night's sleep. Tonight, I'll be reading chapters 10 and 11 of The Phantom of the Opera by Gaston LaRue. So let your eyes fall heavy and your breath soften as we settle in for a peaceful night's sleep. Chapter 10 Forget the Name of the Man's Voice The day after Christine had vanished before his eyes in a sort of dazzlement that still made him doubt the evidence of his senses, Monsieur le Vicomte de Chagny called to inquire at Mama Valerius's. He came upon a charming picture. Christine herself was seated by the bedside of the old lady, who was sitting up against the pillows, knitting. The pink and white had returned to the young girl's cheeks. The dark rings around her eyes had disappeared. Raoul no longer recognized the tragic face of the day before. If the veil of melancholy over those adorable features had not still appeared to the young man as the last trace of the weird drama in whose toils that mysterious child was struggling, he could have believed that Christine was not its heroine at all. She rose, without showing any emotion, and offered him her hand. But Raoul's stupefaction was so great that he stood there, dumbfounded, without a gesture, without a word. Well, Monsieur de Chagny, exclaimed Mama Valerius, don't you know our Christine? Her good genius has sent her back to us. Mama, the girl broke in promptly, while a deep blush mantled to her eyes. I thought, Mama, that there was to be no more question of that. You know there is no such thing as the angel of music. But child, he gave you lessons for three months 
Mama, I have promised to explain everything to you one of these days, and I hope to do so, but you have promised me until that day to be silent and to ask me no more questions whatever, provided that you promise never to leave me again. But have you promised that, Christine? Mama, all this cannot interest Monsieur de Chagny. On the contrary, mademoiselle, said the young man, in a voice which he tried to make firm and brave, but which still trembled. Anything that concerns you interests me to an extent which perhaps you will one day understand. I do not deny that my surprise equals my pleasure at finding you with your adopted mother, and that, after what happened between us yesterday, after what you said and what I was able to guess, I hardly expected to see you here so soon. I should be the first to delight at your return, if you were not so bent on persevering a secrecy that may be fatal to you, and I have been your friend too long not to be alarmed, with Mademoiselle Valerius, at a disastrous adventure which will remain dangerous so long as we have not unravelled its threads and of which you will certainly end by being the victim, Christine. At those words, Mama Valerius tossed about in her bed. What does this mean? she cried. Is Christine in danger? Yes, madame, said Raoul courageously, notwithstanding the signs which Christine made to him. My God, exclaimed the good, simple old woman, gasping for breath. You must tell me everything, Christine. Why did you try to reassure me? And what danger is it, Monsieur de Chagny? An imposter is abusing her good faith. Is the angel of music an imposter? She told you herself that there is no angel of music. But then what is it, in heaven's name? You will be the death of me. There is a terrible mystery around us, madame. Around you. Around Christine. A mystery much more to be feared than any number of ghosts or genie. Mama Valerius turned a terrified face to Christine, who had already run to her adopted mother and was holding her in her arms. Don't believe him, mummy, don't believe him, she repeated. Then tell me that you will never leave me again, implored the widow. Christine was silent and Raoul resumed. That is what you must promise, Christine. It is the only thing that can reassure your mother and me. We will undertake not 
to ask you a single question about the past if you promise us to remain under our protection in future. That is an undertaking which I have not asked of you and a promise which I refuse to make you, said the young girl haughtily. I am mistress of my own actions, Monsieur de Chagny. You have no right to control them, and I will beg you to desist henceforth. As to what I have done during the last fortnight, there is only one man in the world who has the right to demand an account of me. My husband. Well, I have no husband, and I never mean to marry. She threw out her hands to emphasize her words, and Raoul turned pale, not only because of the words which had been heard, but because he had caught sight of a plain gold ring on Christine's finger. You have no husband, and yet you wear a wedding ring. He tried to seize her hand, but she swiftly drew it back. That's a present, she said, blushing once more and vainly striving to hide her embarrassment. Christine, as you have no husband, that ring can only have been given by one who hopes to make you his wife. Why deceive us further? Why torture me still more? That ring is a promise, and that promise has been accepted. That's what I said, exclaimed the old lady. And what did she answer, madame? What I chose, said Christine, driven to exasperation. Don't you think, monsieur, that this cross-examination has lasted long enough, as far as I am concerned? Raoul was afraid to let her finish her speech. He interrupted her. I beg your pardon for speaking as I did, mademoiselle. You know the good intentions that make me meddle, just now, in matters which, you no doubt think, have nothing to do with me. But allow me to tell you what I have seen, and I have seen more than you suspect, Christine, or what I thought I saw, for, to tell you the truth, I have sometimes been inclined to doubt the evidence of my eyes. Well, what did you see, sir, or think you saw? I saw your ecstasy at the sound of the voice, Christine, the voice that came from the wall or the next room to yours. Yes, your ecstasy and that is what makes me alarmed on your behalf. You are under a very dangerous spell, and yet it seems that you are aware of the imposture, because you say today that there is no angel of music. In that case, Christine, 
Why did you follow him that time? Why did you stand up with radiant features as though you were really hearing angels? Ah, it is a very dangerous voice, Christine, for I myself, when I heard it, was so much fascinated by it that you vanished before my eyes without my seeing which way you passed. Christine, Christine, in the name of heaven, in the name of your father who is in heaven now and who loved you so dearly and who loved me too, Christine, tell us, tell your benefactress and me, to whom does that voice belong? If you do, we will save you in spite of yourself. Come, Christine, the name of the man, the name of the man who had the audacity to put a ring on your finger. Monsieur de Chagny, the girl declared coldly, you shall never know. Thereupon, seeing the hostility with which her ward had addressed the Viscount, Mama Valerius suddenly took Christine's part. And if she does love that man, Monsieur le Vicomte, even then it is no business of yours. Alas, madame, Raoul humbly replied, unable to restrain his tears. Alas, I believe that Christine really does love him, but it is not only that which drives me to despair, for what I am not certain of, madame, is that the man whom Christine loves is worthy of her love. It is for me to be the judge of that, monsieur, said Christine, looking Raoul angrily in the face. When a man, continued Raoul, adopts such romantic methods to entice a young girl's affections, the man must be either a villain or the girl a fool, is that it? Christine, Raoul, why do you condemn a man whom you have never seen, whom no one knows, and about whom you yourself know nothing? Yes, Christine, yes. I at least know the name that you thought to keep from me forever, the name of your angel of music, mademoiselle, is Eric. Christine at once betrayed herself. She turned as white as a sheet and stammered, Who told you? You yourself. How do you mean? By pitying him the other night, the night of the masked ball. When you went to your dressing room, did you not say, Poor Eric? Well, Christine... There was a poor Raoul who overheard you. This is the second time that you have listened behind the door, Monsieur de Chagny. I was not behind the door, 
I was in the dressing room, in the inner room, mademoiselle. Oh, unhappy man, moaned the girl, showing every sign of unspeakable terror. Unhappy man, do you want to be killed? Perhaps. Raoul uttered this perhaps with so much love and despair in his voice that Christine could not keep back a sob. She took his hand and looked at him with all the pure affection of which she was capable. Raoul, she said, forget the man's voice and do not even remember its name. You must never try to fathom the mystery of the man's voice. Is the mystery so very terrible? There is no more awful mystery on this earth. Swear to me that you will make no attempt to find out, she insisted. Swear to me that you will never come to my dressing room unless I send for you. Then you promise to send for me sometimes, Christine. I promise. When? Tomorrow. Then I swear to do as you ask. He kissed her hand and went away, cursing Eric and resolving to be patient. Chapter 11 Above the Trap Doors The next day he saw her at the opera. She was still wearing the plain gold ring. She was gentle and kind to him. She talked to him of the plans which he was forming, of his future, of his career. He told her that the date of the polar expedition had been put forward and that he would leave France in three weeks or a month at latest. She suggested, almost gaily, that he must look upon the voyage with delight as a stage towards his coming fate, and when he replied that fame without love was no attraction in his eyes, she treated him as a child whose sorrows were only short-lived. How can you speak so lightly of such serious things? he asked. Perhaps we shall never see each other again. I may die during that expedition. Or I, she said simply. She no longer smiled or jested. She seemed to be thinking of some new thing that had entered her mind for the first time. Her eyes were all aglow with it. What are you thinking of, Christine? I am thinking that we shall not see each other again. And does that make you so radiant? And that, in a month, we shall have to say goodbye forever. Unless, Christine, we pledge our faith and wait for each other forever. She put her hand on his mouth. 
Hush, Raoul, you know there is no question of that, and we shall never be married, that is understood. She seemed suddenly almost unable to contain an overpowering gaiety. She clapped her hands with childish glee. Raoul stared at her in amazement. But, but, she continued, holding out her two hands to Raoul, or rather giving them to him as though she had suddenly resolved to make him a present of them. But if we cannot be married, we can, we can be engaged. Nobody will know but ourselves, Raoul. There have been plenty of secret marriages. Why not a secret engagement? We are engaged, dear, for a month. In a month, you will go away and I can be happy at the thought of that month all my life long. She was enchanted with her inspiration. Then she became serious again. This, she said, is a happiness that will harm no one. Raoul jumped at the idea. He bowed to Christine and said, Mademoiselle, I have the honor to ask for your hand. Why, you have both of them already, my dear betrothed. Oh, Raoul, how happy we shall be. We must play at being engaged all day long. It was the prettiest game in the world, and they enjoyed it like the children that they were. Oh, the wonderful speeches they made to each other, and the eternal vows they exchanged. They played at hearts as other children might play at ball, only, as it was really their two hearts they had flung to and fro, they had to be very, very handy to catch them, each time, without hurting them. One day, about a week after the game began, Raoul's heart was badly hurt, and he stopped playing and uttered these wild words. I shan't go to the North Pole. Christine, who, in her innocence, had not dreamed of such a possibility, suddenly discovered the danger of the game and reproached herself bitterly. She did not say a word in reply to Raoul's remark, and went straight home. This happened in the afternoon, in the singer's dressing room, where they met every day, and where they amused themselves by dining on three biscuits, two glasses of port, and a bunch of violets. In the evening, she did not sing, and he did not receive his usual letter, though they had arranged to write each other daily during that month. The next morning, he ran off to Mama Valerius, 
who told him that Christine had gone away for two days. She had left at five o'clock the day before. Raoul was distracted. He hated Mama Valerius for giving him such news as that with such stupefying calmness. He tried to sound her, but the old lady obviously knew nothing. Christine returned on the following day. She returned in triumph. She renewed her extraordinary success of the gala performance. Since the adventure of the toad, Carlotta had not been able to appear on the stage. The terror of a fresh coac filled her heart and deprived her of all her power of singing, and the theatre that had witnessed her incomprehensible disgrace had become odious to her. She contrived to cancel her contract. Day was offered the vacant place for the time. She received thunders of applause in the juvie. The Viscount, who of course, was present, was the only one to suffer on hearing the thousand echoes of this fresh triumph, for Christine still wore her plain gold ring. A distant voice whimpered in the young man's ear. She is wearing the ring again tonight, and you did not give it to her. She gave her soul again tonight and did not give it to you. If she will not tell you what she has been doing the past two days, you must go and ask Eric. He ran behind the scenes and placed himself in her way. She saw him, for her eyes were looking for him. She said, Quick, quick, come, and she dragged him to her dressing room. Raoul at once threw himself on his knees before her. He swore to her that he would go, and he entreated her never again to withhold a single hour of the ideal happiness which she had promised him. She let her tears flow. They kissed like a despairing brother and sister who have been smitten with a common loss and who meet to mourn a dead parent. Suddenly, she snatched herself from the young man's soft and timid embrace, seemed to listen to something, and, with a quick gesture, pointed to the floor. When he was on the threshold, she said, in so low a voice, that the Viscount guessed rather than heard her words. Tomorrow, my dear betrothed, and be happy, Raoul, I sang for you tonight. He returned the next day, but those two days of absence had broken the charm of their delightful make-believe. They looked at each other in the dressing room with their sad eyes, without exchanging a word. Raoul had to restrain himself not to cry out, 
I am jealous. I am jealous. I am jealous. But she heard him all the same. Then she said, Come for a walk, dear. The air will do you good. Raoul thought she would propose a stroll in the country, far from that building which he detested as a prison whose jailer he could feel walking within the walls, the jailer Eric. But she took him to the stage and made him sit on the wooden curb of a well in the doubtful peace and coolness of a first scene set for the evening's performance. On another day, she wandered with him, hand in hand, along the deserted paths of a garden whose creepers had been cut out by a decorator's skillful hand. It was as though the real sky, the real flowers, the real earth were forbidden her for all time, and she condemned to breathe no other air than that of the theatre. An occasional fireman passed, watching over their melancholy idol from afar, and she would drag him above the clouds in the magnificent disorder of the grid, where she loved to make him giddy by running in front of him along the frail bridges, among the thousands of ropes fastened to the pulleys, the windlasses, the rollers, in the midst of a regular forest of yards and masts. If he hesitated, she said, with an adorable pout of her lips, You, a sailor, and then she returned to terra firma, that is to say, to some passage that led them to the little girl's dancing school, where brats between six and ten were practicing their steps, in the hopes of becoming great dancers one day, covered with diamonds. Meanwhile, Christine gave them sweets instead, She took him to the wardrobe and property rooms, took him all over her empire, which was artificial but immense, covering seventeen stories from the ground floor to the roof and inhabited by an army of subjects. She moved among them like a popular queen, encouraging them in their labours, sitting down in the workshops, giving words of advice to the workmen whose hands hesitated to cut into the rich stuffs that were to clothe heroes. There were inhabitants of that country who practiced every trade. There were cobblers, there were goldsmiths. All had learned to know her and to love her for she always interested herself in all their troubles and all their hobbies. She knew unsuspected corners that were secretly occupied by little old couples, 
she knocked at their door and introduced Raoul to them as a Prince Charming who had asked for her hand, and the two of them, sitting on some worm-eaten property, would listen to the legends of the opera, even as, in their childhood, they had listened to the old Breton tales. Those old people remembered nothing outside the opera. They had lived there for years without number. Past managements had forgotten them. Palace revolutions had taken no notice of them. The history of France had run its course unknown to them, and nobody recollected their existence. The precious days sped in this way, and Raoul and Christine, by affecting excessive interest in outside matters, strove awkwardly to hide from each other the one thought of their hearts. One fact was certain, that Christine, who until then had shown herself the stronger of the two, became suddenly inexpressibly nervous. When on their expeditions, she would start running without reason, or else suddenly stop, and her hand, turning ice-cold in a moment, would hold the young man back. Sometimes her eyes seemed to pursue imaginary shadows. She cried, this way, and this way, and this way, laughing a breathless laugh that often ended in tears. Then Raoul tried to speak, to question her, in spite of his promise. But, even before he had worded his question, she answered feverishly, Nothing. I swear it is nothing. Once when they were passing before an open trap door on the stage, Raoul stopped over the dark cavity. You have shown me over the upper part of your empire, Christine, but there are strange stories told of the lower part. Shall we go down? She caught him in her arms, as though she feared to see him disappear down the black hole, and, in a trembling voice, whispered, Never. I will not have you go there. Besides, it's not mine. Everything that is underground belongs to him. Raoul looked her in the eyes and said roughly, So he lives down there, does he? I never said so. Who told you a thing like that? Come away. I sometimes wonder if you are quite sane, Raoul. You always take things in such an impossible way. Come along, come. And she literally dragged him away, for he was obstinate and wanted to remain by the trap door. That hole attracted him. Suddenly, 
the trap door was closed, and so quickly that they did not even see the hand that worked it, and they remained quite dazed. Perhaps he was there, Raoul said at last. She shrugged her shoulders, but did not seem easy. No, no, it was the trap door shutters. They must do something, you know. They open and shut the trap doors without any particular reason. It's like the door shutters. They must spend their time somehow. But suppose it were he, Christine. No, no. He has shut himself up. He is working. Oh, really? He's working, is he? Yes. He can't open and shut the trap doors and work at the same time. She shivered. What is he working at? Oh, something terrible. But it's all the better for us. When he works at that, he sees nothing. He does not eat, drink, or breathe for days and nights at a time. He becomes a living dead man and has no time to amuse himself with the trap doors. She shivered again. She was still holding him in her arms. Then she sighed and said in her turn, Suppose it were he. Are you afraid of him? No, no, of course not, she said. For all that, on the next day and the following days, Christine was careful to avoid the trap doors. Her agitation only increased as the hours passed. At last, one afternoon, she arrived very late, with her face so desperately pale and her eyes so desperately red that Raoul resolved to go to all lengths, including that which he foreshadowed when he blurted out that he would not go to the North Pole expedition unless she first told him the secret of the man's voice. Hush, hush, in heaven's name, suppose he heard you, you unfortunate Raoul. And Christine's eyes stared wildly at everything around her. I will remove you from his power, Christine, I swear it, and you shall not think of him any more. Is it possible? She allowed herself this doubt, which was an encouragement, while dragging the young man up to the topmost floor of the theatre, far, very far from the trap doors. I shall hide you in some unknown corner of the world where he cannot come to look for you. You will be safe, and then I shall go away, as you have sworn never to marry. 
Christine seized Raoul's hands and squeezed them with incredible rapture. But suddenly, becoming alarmed again, she turned away her head. Higher was all she said, higher still, and she dragged him up towards the summit. He had a difficulty in following her. They were soon under the very roof in the maze of timber work. They slipped through the buttresses, the rafters, the joists. They ran from beam to beam as they might have run from tree to tree in a forest. And, despite the care which she took to look behind her at every moment, she failed to see a shadow which followed her like her own shadow, which stopped when she stopped, which started again when she did, and which made no more noise than a well-conducted shadow should. As for Raoul, he saw nothing either, for when he had Christine in front of him, nothing interested him that happened behind him. 